Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Bernie Nichols. Bernie scored more than a point a game, playing over 1,000 National Hockey League games over 18 seasons for the Los Angeles Kings, New York Rangers, Edmonton Oilers, New Jersey Devils, Chicago Blackhawks, and San Jose Sharks. A three-time All-Star, Bernie actually had a single season where he scored 70 goals and added 80 assists. Yes, that is 150 points in one year, which sounds insane. You know what else sounds insane, dear listener? Bernie Nichols is not in the Hockey Hall of Fame, but we will get to that. Known for his flamboyant style and dynamic scoring ability, Bernie is perhaps best known for going from a northern Ontario town of 75 people to playing alongside Wayne Gretzky in a city of 10 million, the City of Angels. In fact, he called his autobiography From Floodlights to Bright Lights, and I'm pleased he has taken time to chat with me today. Welcome, Bernie, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you? I'm uh, up north in West Guilford. Are you enjoying your winter so far? I understand you're a guy who loves the outdoors. Yeah, this is uh, my second winter back home since I was probably 19 years old. Uh, so it hasn't been too bad yet. The weather, uh, we've got some snow, but it comes and goes. So it, it's not too bad. But I I always enjoy the outdoors. I, I hunt till probably uh, Christmas time. So now I'm still doing some charity hockey and uh, playing some simulator golf. So it's all good. <laughs> Definitely keeping busy. Now, you've lived in huge cities, Los Angeles, New York City, Manhattan. Why have you chosen in your retirement to return to your roots and uh, live in the Halliburton area? Well, I honestly think, uh, you know, this has always been my home and always will be. So I always say with people, they, uh, especially kids in, in, in small towns, they always leave at a young age, but uh, always seem to find their way home. And for me, this will always be my home. And there's nothing better than coming back. And like you said, I've lived in New York, LA, Chicago, probably three of the biggest cities in, in North America, but still find myself coming home and uh, enjoy where I'm from. And it's always good to be home. Well, let's talk about where you're from. Let's go all the way back, get the Bernie Nichols story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. I, uh, I was born in Halliburton. It's probably 10, 15 miles from my little town it's it's the bigger town that where I went to school played my minor hockey so it's obviously small we're we're probably two and a half hours north of Toronto it's it's a small town but this is where I, I grew up uh, all my minor hockey was played here went to school here and stayed here until I was 16 when I uh, moved away to to play junior hockey in Woodstock and Bernie I believe if I'm not mistaken that your mural is on the side of the arena in uh, in Halliburton. Yeah, they've done that with a few of us. Ron Stackhouse is there. Ron grew up probably 500 yards from where I grew up uh, in, in our little town. And then uh, a couple other kids from a little f- out in Halliburton, Matt Duchesne and, and uh, Cody Hodson, they're on there too. So yeah, it, it's pretty special when you got such a small town and you get four guys that make it to the NHL. I think that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Now, the town you're talking about, West Guilford, after growing up and playing your minor hockey in that area, your junior career was spent with the Kingston Canadians. Let's jump right ahead to the NHL draft. You were selected by the Los Angeles Kings, fourth round of the 1980 NHL entry draft, 73rd overall. Bernie, what were your expectations leading up to the draft? Did you have a sense of what was coming? Yeah, I really didn't. Uh, I, I probably knew I was going to get drafted. You know, I think 
people always ask you, when did you know, right? Like if, uh, if you're going to get drafted. And I think for, for most of us, every level you play at, you're always the best player. And then when you get to the NA or when you get to junior hockey and you're one of the best players, the next step's the NHL. And you got, uh, agents kind of courting you, so to speak. Uh, so basically you, you pretty much know you're getting drafted. Obviously you don't know where until the day comes. And for me, it was the LA Kings and, uh, I get a call at home. It wasn't, we didn't go to the draft back then. So I, uh, actually got a call at home my mom answered it I wasn't home at the time I come driving home and she come running out and said uh you just get drafted to the LA Kings so obviously a special day as a player as a kid all you dream about playing the NHL you don't really care where and uh for me it was the LA Kings and it was really special it's a great thing to visualize Bernie because as you know 1980 today it's a big production the draft but 1980 the draft wasn't made for TV you're at home and there's no cell phones. <laughs> You're waiting for the home phone to ring. Your mom pick up the phone and tell you. Now, the story goes, apparently, that you get the news you've been drafted by the LA Kings. And your response is, I didn't even know Los Angeles had a professional NHL team. Yeah. Uh, growing up in my hometown, we only had two TV channels back in the day. And we always got Hockey Night in Canada, Toronto Maple Leafs, every Saturday night. And if I was watching the game, you know, you're... you're pretty much just watching Toronto and Montreal you really don't pay much attention to the other teams especially Los Angeles and, and I, I've said this before right especially for me playing in Los Angeles we don't play our home games till 10 30 at night back east and by that time most people were back here gone to bed anyway so you know as a young kid probably wouldn't be up at 10 30 watching hockey game anyway so you really wouldn't know much about the LA Kings so when I was told about it I, I probably heard about it, but maybe not, you know, so, uh, but like I said, it didn't really matter where you got drafted. It's just getting drafted. And, and for me, it was LA and I couldn't pick a better team to go to. Well, it was a great fit. You played one season in the American Hockey League with the New Haven Nighthawks. But once you got called up to the Kings, you never looked back. Talk about getting to the LA Kings as a rookie. Did the older players look out for you? Or were they kind of more concerned that, you know, this young guy was about to take their jobs? Well, I think you get both, right? Obviously, the the people in my position uh, were not helpful at all. Uh, they knew that there was a young kid coming and chance are good. He's taken one of our jobs here. And if you're a centerman, it might be yours, right? So other than Marcel Dion, Mars had no worries, obviously. But Mars was a big help for me. Charlie Simmer, Dave Taylor. Uh, Mike Murphy was my coach at the time, and Mike was awesome with the younger players. He was awesome with me, and uh, which I think is very crucial in, in hockey, especially back then. You need the, the leadership and the role model, so to speak, by the older players. And for me, it was Mike and Charlie. I, I just think that, you know, you get a little bit of both, right? You get the guys that are afraid that you're coming for their job, and you get the other guys that know you're going to help their team, and, and they're going to help you along the way. Well, what a great situation for you to go to with Marcel Dion playing center ahead of you. I'm guessing he was about five foot seven. I, I just ran, as you may know, Bernie, he had a longtime restaurant in Niagara Falls, which is, has since closed the diner. And he's always there and he's got great memorabilia. But I ran into him at a card show. He does not look like what I would picture a, a professional hockey player. Granted, he's a grandpa now. And at his size, how did he dominate the way he did? <laughs> Yeah, you know, Mars was obviously gifted. 
really good skater, which is huge back then, especially for a smaller sized player, right? The game was so physical back then. You had to be able to skate real well if you if you didn't have the size. Mars didn't have the size, but he had the skill. Like 700 goals, I think. Like, anybody scores 700 goals in the NHL, obviously you got something. And uh, and I got to watch a lot of it, which was really special, right? So I couldn't have a better player for me to watch such a gifted offensive player as Marcel. So it was special for me and uh, obviously really beneficial for me to be able to watch him every day. I think as I alluded to in the introduction and you've said before, it's a great visualization. This kid coming from the small town, 75 people in Canada, and you're flying into Los Angeles, home to 10 million people. Talk about what it was like going into from Canadian winters to this warm, warm California sun, but playing hockey. Yeah, uh, for anybody who's ever flown into L.A., it's actually pretty special because you, you fly, actually, you fly right over the form at the time. Uh, it's still there, but I mean, and, and the racetrack is right there beside the forum. And then you got the palm trees, uh, the ocean. So it's a little different because that it was probably actually my first flight. We, we had training camp Victoria, so I flew there. But then, then you fly into Los Angeles so uh, and just see the massive buildings and and stuff but you remember most is you remember the palm trees airport park and the forum it it was so cool to fly right over the forum where you're going to play and spend you know 10 years of your hockey career uh so it was really pretty cool what a magical time let's talk about the pre-gretzky years we're kind of 82 to 88 you were sharing the Great Western Forum with the Showtime Los Angeles Lakers, Dr. Jerry Buss, Magic, Kareem. How much were you interacting with them, and, and were you kind of aware of the excitement in uh, L.A. sports at the time? Yeah, the cool thing there was the Lakers played on Friday nights. We played on Saturday nights, so I used to go there all the time. I'd go uh, just stand by the floor. That it, it was so cool for, for us back then. The ushers uh, would let us... Uh, just stand right right by the floor in the hallway. I'd go in the dressing room after. I knew Kareem, or not Kareem, I knew Michael Cooper real well. I knew Magic real well, a couple guys, So, and obviously Jerry Buss. So you'd interact with them a lot, and it, it was really cool because mid-'80s, they were the best best team in the league and won a few championships, so I got to experience that. Uh, so that was really special to that we uh, – like our dressing room and their dressing room – connected right so oh yeah and then it's not like today where you go to a game today it's like trying to get into the white house right it didn't it doesn't matter who you are you need badges you need this and that but back then i could go anywhere i wanted to and to be able to hang out with them and, and watch them play every night was was really pretty cool what a time now also something unique was the forum club this was unique because it was essentially a bar in the arena that not only fans could go to, but the players would go to. You would hang out with the fans in the forum club. Yeah, we were the only team in the league that had that. And I remember you, uh, for the visiting team coming in, they couldn't wait to get up there after the game, right? Because <laughs> you didn't have to travel anywhere. You didn't have to go to a bar anywhere. You just go upstairs and the weather was nice. So it, it was pretty cool to have both. We had the forum club and then we had the press lounge. Press lounge were... Uh, the owner, the the coaches all went, and we had the forum club, and it was cool. They they they'd break it off. They'd have our section in the back, but uh, just 
kind of not gate a little gated off, but I mean, we, you could still come out and interact with the other uh, team and the, and the fans. So that was really pretty cool. You're having a great time. You're doing well in LA. Things go to the next level. 1988. How did you find out Wayne Gretzky is coming to Los Angeles? I was actually playing golf, and it was actually Jeremy Roenick that had mentioned to me that he had just heard you got uh, Gretzky in a trade, and I called bullshit on that right off the bat. I'm going, "You got to be kidding me, right?" <laughs> and uh, but I was real good friends with the owner, uh, Bruce McNall, so I reached out to Bruce right, right away, and he said, "Yep." Uh, we just traded for Gretz. So obviously hockey in LA was turned upside down. Uh, we went from a team that, you know, maybe had one or two reporters every night and our diehard 10, 12,000 fans to sold out every night. All the Hollywood celebrity people had to be there, Hollywood actors. And we went from being probably fourth or fifth on the list in, in LA to being the, the place to be. I had a you know, the Lakers, the, the Dodgers, and uh, having Gretz in town was pretty special for all of us. Well, as you note, L.A. was now the place to be. You want to talk about some of your exciting interactions? I know that uh, John Candy became kind of a golf buddy. Well, uh, John was always a big fan, being Canadian. John would come to a lot of our games. I was fortunate one time. We were at an event for Craig Stadler, and Bruce and I were there supporting uh, Craig's event, and they had an auction to golf with Craig. You played Cypress Point, then up about four courses, but you'd fly with them. And uh, we're up to Tahoe, played Edgewood up there, stayed at Caesars Palace and in there. And so I bidded for it, obviously with Bruce's money, and end up getting it. It was supposed to be Bruce and uh, Craig, Gretz and I. Gretz couldn't go, so John Candy went. So I got to spend like about four days with John, uh, golfing, hanging out. It was really pretty special. When Wayne Gretzky arrived, you became his guy. You were like his right-hand man, always bonded kind of at the hip. Why? Why did Wayne Gretzky get attracted so much to you and, and you had such a great uh, friendship and great teammates? Well, you know, honestly, I think Gretzky knew there's a lot of pressure on him making a trade like they did. And I think he knew that he needed help for him to be successful. He needed uh, help from the rest of us, right? So uh, I think he knew that I was his guy. If I played well, obviously it was going to help him. And from that moment on, we uh, we were connected. Uh, everywhere I, he went, I was with him. It was just him and I. It was really, really a special year for me, obviously being able to hang with Wayne every every night and the uh, confidence he had in me to to perform and, and help him and the team. Fortunately for me, I, I did it. Proud of that. You know, uh, it, it couldn't have worked out any better for, for me. But talk about why the result of that great friendship and being so close today means that you, you can't go uh, near a Big Mac anymore. <laughs> you had just too many in the past. <laughs> What's that all about? Yeah, we had a McDonald's about 200 yards from our practice rank and Every day after practice, Gretz would say, let's go for lunch. And when Gretz asked you to go for lunch or dinner, you're going. And Gretz, <laughs> he, he loved McDonald's. And so we spent a lot of time uh, having McDonald's for lunch. So I think he's, uh, I've had enough when I was, you know, in L.A. So I, I don't really visit McDonald's much anymore. 
Now, as you know, Bernie, you've been with so many teammates, so many teams. Some leaders stand up and shout and uh, wave their fists. Gretzky wasn't that kind of leader. Talk about his quiet leadership and what it meant to get kind of a tap on the shin pads. Yeah, Gretz was more, uh, I think if, if people uh, look back at the, the Oiler days, I think, uh, you know, I think Mark Messier was probably the more vocal of the leaders. Obviously, you got your captain, you got your assistants, and Gretz just, he just led by example, right? And uh, that's the way he was in LA. Coming to LA, he, he just led by example. He would come around and he'd come to me and just give me a little tap and say, look, I need you tonight. And, you know, I think as a, as a player, you just, you know, it's Gretzky, right? And you just go, oh shit, you just, you just want to go. That's the way Wayne was. He was just quiet and he, he just led by example. And, and that's the best kind for me. If uh, you're only as good as your, your, your good players, right? And uh, yeah. every, every team, every, uh, you know, uh, no matter what sport you're playing, your, your best players, your hardest working players. And that's the way Gretz was. He just went and he worked hard. And uh, I think the, one of the best things I ever heard, and it was from Wayne, is it was from Wally, right? Wayne was playing some time, and he just didn't feel like playing, and Wally gave him a hard time. He said, you know, you got people here that are paying big money to watch you play, and you're going to play hard every night, and it doesn't matter what the score is. Uh, and that's the way Wayne was. Wayne, you got the best of Wayne every night, every minute of every shift. You, you got to respect that, right? Like, like he's, Like his dad said, people pay good money. There's kids coming that maybe to watch you play for the first time and you, you can't take a minute off and Wayne never did. And I really like that about Wayne. Well, as you notice, his, his late father was such a great influence on him. You know, Wayne Gretzky is possibly one of the most well-known, most recognizable athletes on the planet. But Bernie, knowing him so well, what would surprise the average person to know about the great one that maybe we don't know? Probably his knowledge for the game. Gretzky knew everything about it. He knew uh, every stat of every player. I've I've said this different time. There's not a better ambassador for any sport, and, and there's great ones, right? There, in every sport, they have great ambassadors, and there never will be a better ambassador for hockey than Wayne. He has so much respect for the game, respect for people playing it. He's just genuine, and, and you know what happens sometimes. I think with with great players, and 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 I've watched it firsthand with Wayne. It's like a lot of times people give a get a bad rap just because someone comes up to ask for an autograph it's like if wayne stops for one before you know it there's 50 people there right and so there's times that you can't do what people want you to do and like i say it's different when it's wayne uh i remember going to a to a movie one time we snuck into the movie theater in edmonton and you know obviously someone had seen us and when we come out there's 50 people there waiting to to mug wayne and uh it's times you know that they got to sneak around but for me, there, there's not a, a, a better person to, you know, to have front and center for hockey, even to this day, than Gretzky. As good as McDavid is and, and Sid uh, as Canadians, right? And, and they're amazing. To me, Sid is still, he, he's awesome. But to have Gretz as our ambassador to this day, he's the best. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Bernie Nichols, Please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got Swedish superstar Anders Hedberg, former referee and ESPN analyst Dave Jackson, as well as former Maple Leafs Todd Gill, Alan Bester, Kent Manderville, Ken Reggett, and Robert Picard. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto legends themselves, 
all episodes available 24 7 365 wherever you get your podcasts well what's amazing about that 88 89 season again 70 goals 80 assists 150 points but something that's notable bernie is you're the same position as wayne gretzky you're both center so how did you, you know, manage to get so much ice time with him, despite the fact that essentially you shouldn't be on the ice at the same time? Yeah, Gretz and I played center, and I think a lot of people think that that year, because of what I did, I played with Wayne every every shift. Uh, I killed penalties with Wayne. I played the power play with Wayne. Uh, I had eight shorthanded goals. Power, I don't know how many power play goals I had, but it would probably be a few. Yeah. But every chance we could, you know, if... Uh, Luke and I would stay out as long as we could to, to get a shift with Gretz if, if uh, he was up behind us, which was always fun because Gretz always took the first guy. We we did get a fair share of ice time together, which was, was awesome, obviously. And, you know, I, I said this different times. I got to play with Wayne for a year and a half, and, and I just couldn't imagine what it'd be like to play with him for four or five, you know, ten years. Man, that would have been fun. Yeah, that is amazing. You only had a season and a half with him. Imagine what you could have done over a whole career. Yeah. The other uh, interesting thing, Bernie, we talk about teammates at that end of the skill spectrum. We talk about some other teammates who are known for different things. Ken Baumgartner and Marty McSorley, I think perhaps they're both underrated as players. What do you say about uh, Marty and Ken as teammates? Yeah, you couldn't get better teammates, right? Um, There's a reason why uh, Marty came with Wayne. They, they both have had a role and played it very well, but we're skilled. You know, I think sometimes guys that fight are, are probably known more for that, but they, they still had skill. Like I, I've always said this about Marty, right? He did so much with the limited skill that he had. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Cause, cause like I say, people think of Marty as just a fighter. Marty had great mm-hmm. hands, but he had a great head, right? Like some of the plays he made, you're looking going, holy geez, that's like a Paul Coffey or uh, Bobby Orr, right? And I, I mean that. Like Marty had Marty had some skill. And I, I think it just went unknown just because he was such a good fighter. But he did. He uh, mm-hmm. Marty had Marty had skill. And I have to tell you, Bernie, uh, my last name is Applebaum and my Toronto Maple Leaf jersey has bomber on the back. And every time I go to a game, uh, people of course don't associate it with me because I topped out at uh, Pleasant View House League Select, but they assume I'm uh, paying homage to uh, Ken Baumgartner, the original Baumgartner. Yeah, I really enjoyed my time with Kenny. Kenny was probably one of the first people that really protected me. And as a, a player, I, I have so much respect for Ken for that, right? And we, we had some different times that Kenny would come in and he was vocal at times and he was funny, but boy, he could... Uh, he could fight, and I know one time after a game, we were going out, and Kenny was walking. We were walking out to the car, and somebody had had a little too much to drink. Mm-hmm. Was going to be a smart ass, and he got obviously he was trying to be a smart ass with the wrong person because he went at Kenny a little bit, and all I hear in the background is, "Oh my God, stop! That's Kenny Baumgartner, right?" But thankfully <laughs> for us, there was an undercover cop that had seen it. Uh, because Kenny gave it to him pretty good, but the cop had seen it, so he knew that it had nothing to do with Kenny. The guy came at him, uh, so it worked out pretty good for us, but not so much for the guy that uh, thought he would try Kenny Baumgartner. 
Crisis averted. Yeah. (laughs) Bernie, tell us about your signature goal scoring celebration, the Pumpernickel. Who came up with it? And are you still asked to do it today when uh, you run into fans? Oh, they still ask a little bit. I, I, I don't do it. I always find it hard. Right when I when I do uh, charity games, for some reason I don't like to score. It's not that I feel embarrassed, I, and I do score just, but I would never do anything after a celebration or anything. But it was actually Bob Miller that gave me that. He just named it. I I, I just love to score goals, and and I got so excited uh, when I score. Right, felt like a kid, and I love to this day when you see guys celebrate a goal like. Ovechkin, I knew he get he get, got a hard time young earlier in his career because he got so excited to score. But scoring goals in the NHL is not easy, right? And uh, and if you're not excited to score a goal, then you shouldn't be playing, right? Because it's so much fun. So I showed it, and the way I showed it, and it was Bob Miller. He uh, he nicknamed it the Pumpernickel, and he had fun <laughs> with it uh, because every time I scored, I did it, and uh, so it worked out pretty well. Well, that was one of your hallmarks, Bernie, that you had fun out on the ice. Now, people may be saying, why did you only have a year and a half to play with Wayne Gretzky? Let's move on to the next stage of your career. Despite being assured by owner Bruce McNall that you absolutely were not going to be traded, and therefore you went out and bought a mansion, yes, surprise, you were traded while at the 1990 All-Star Game to the New York Rangers. How'd you find this out? And talk about the strange circumstances of you literally being at the All-Star Game celebrations when you found out. Yeah, I was asked to skills competition on Friday night. Mike Vernon, actually, we're just walking out. And he said, I heard you just got traded. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, so I went to Bruce McNall again. And uh, he said, yeah, we just traded New York. And I kind of, as, as tough as it was, right? I, I know that's part of the game and part of the business. But like I say to people, it's not so bad that I get traded. That's that's part of it. But the problem I had is, like I said, I don't know what it would be like to play with Gretz for two, three, five years, right? It was so much fun. And so to me, that was the most disappointing part. Uh, I understand the problem when, when Gretz came to L.A., he had no one to play with, right? Like they tried to put him with their two best wingers, Dave Taylor and, and Luke Robitaille. And for some reason, they just couldn't connect and i don't know how you you couldn't with gretz right gretz needed that more that one timer right winger like uh yari curry and dave was not that uh luke was but it's on the wrong side for wayne so um they needed someone for wayne to play with and and i understand that you're not gonna you know spend five fifteen million dollars and give up you know jimmy carson and and our future for Gretz and not have anybody for him to play with. So I understood that, right? As tough as it was, like I said, I understand that part. I, I was just disappointed that I couldn't play with Wayne anymore. And a little quirk was you went to the All-Star game in 1990 representing the LA Kings in the Western Conference. You are now traded to the New York Rangers in the Eastern Conference. Who did you end up playing for in that All-Star game? I, I stayed with the West. I, I played for the West that, that day. And you played against your uh, soon-to-be teammates. You quickly earned the nickname Broadway Bernie. You've now gone from one mega city to another. How great was it to play at, at Madison Square Garden? Yeah, I always say to people, you know, it's an original six team. To get traded, there couldn't be a better place for me to get traded to, right? The New York uh, original six team playing in New York. Madison Square Gardens was, was really, really special, right? You go uh, until Gretz got there. 
we had no media. We we had not a lot, you know, hockey people. But now you go to hockey mega of the world, right? Like New York, Madison Square Gardens, the rivalry with the Islanders, Flyers, Devils. It was, you're in the middle of hockey now. And uh, so to play in New York was, it was a lot of fun. And just like you were in the middle of hockey royalty, you were again in the middle of celebrity royalty. In LA, you had all these great interactions. In New York, you had a good story about Tom Hanks and uh, Saturday Night Live. Yeah, well, Tom... Uh, he, he came to all the Kings games, right? And I was good friends with Tom. I'm in New York. Uh, it was on Friday or something. I get a, a phone call from Tom. Most people are thinking just to get a phone call from Tom to begin with is, is pretty cool, right? He asked me what I was doing tomorrow, uh, which was Saturday. And, you know, nothing. He asked if you want to go, do you want to come to Saturday Night Live with me? You know, and I tell people this. You know, I go, well, yeah, let me think about it, Tom. I'll get back to you, right? <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I said, absolutely. He said he wanted me to bring my, my jersey. So I did. I had no idea what he was doing. So I sat with Rita, his his wife, and, you know, front row. And after it was over, you know, Tom comes out with my jersey on, and he's pointing to the back. And so that that was obviously really pretty special. That was pretty good. Yeah. And yeah, Aerosmith was there as well, if I Yeah, uh, Aerosmith. So we went out with them later. <laughs> Uh, it was it was a pretty good night. Bernie, in New York, you were coached by Roger Nielsen. As you know, he's very well-known locally for having coached the Leafs as well. His nickname was Captain Video. Was he the first coach to use video as a tool? Yeah, he was. I had a lot of respect for Roger. I actually had him in L.A. for a little bit, then New York. And there was a harder-working coach than Roger. He was so well-prepared. He was more of a defensive coach, which obviously didn't fit me as well. But, I mean, coming from L.A. in the Smythe division where you, you know, you won games 8-7 or 6-5. Now you go to the Patrick division, which is 2-1, 3-2 games, which I like the West better than the East as far as that goes, right? But <laughs> Yeah, uh, I bet you did. But you learn a lot from Roger, and I did, and, and I just loved him. He was, uh, I really enjoyed playing for Raj. And what did the players think the first time, you know, he's wheeling in this TV and a VCR? Did the players react positively to using video? They had already done that all year before I got there. But like he was just ahead of his time because they, they use it now, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe it was different back then. But uh, I remember after games, after playoff games, he'd break things down for you. And it was a lot of help, obviously, because they're doing it to this day, right? Shit, they have it right in their bench yeah. now, uh, which is yeah. a little ridiculous as far as that goes. But uh, it is what it is, but Rod's just a little bit ahead of his time and uh, really smart and really hardworking. Like I, I've heard stories, Dave Tiger Williams tells me uh, in, in Vancouver, he would come to the rink early and Roger would be asleep on the couch, right? Like he just, yeah. no one worked harder at his craft than Roger did. And I think that's uh, why he had so much respect as a coach from from his players. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up uh, Tiger Williams because of course, here in Toronto, another legend. What was it like playing with Dave Tiger Williams? Uh, it must have been quite a exciting time. Yeah, it was. Uh, I became real close with Dave. Dave was my line mate for a couple of years, and uh, he was a little different. I roomed with him one time, which was funny, but uh, I really enjoyed Dave. Dave worked real hard. Same thing. His, I think his athletic ability or his skill was at one level, but his compete level and heart was even higher, right? So mm-hmm. uh, that's what you like. You take a, a person with heart and desire ahead of 
just pure talent any day, right? Like you're going to get the best of Dave every night. And that, that's all you want as a coach, as a line mate. You just know that what you're going to get and you got that from Dave every night. And I really have a lot of respect for that. And of course you bonded over your both hunters and your both bow hunters. Yeah. Dave was the one that he, he kind of introduced that to me in LA in the early eighties. I had a bow and, and didn't realize at the time because he used to hunt, you know, big game with that. And, and I do to this day and, and we'll never use anything other than a bow, uh, no matter what I'm hunting. So, uh, that was a, a thing Dave got me into, which, uh, I'm thankful for. So you have now about to move on again. History is repeating itself. Bernie, after one season with the New York Rangers, you spoke in the summer off season to GM Neil Smith, and he assured you, you're absolutely not going to be traded. Go ahead, go buy another house. And literally after the first game of the new season, you were traded in exchange for none other than the great leader, Mark Messier. But there was a lot going on in your life. Do you want to talk about this time when you got this trade and, and what happened subsequently with uh, what was going on with your family and, and your your wife in the middle of a difficult pregnancy. Yeah, she was uh, at bed rest with twins. And uh, it was after the first game, Roger Nielsen calls me up and said, we traded you. We're in Boston. We traded Edmonton. Uh, and once again, the most disappointing part of that was, is who I get traded for, right? Trade's part of the game and that's fine. And for me, I, I've had so many battles in, in my career and to me, my fiercest competitor has always been Mark Messier. And uh, when I was in Edmonton, we battled the Oilers and, and Mark every night. And he was a guy that I would have loved to have played for. But, you know, things happen and I get traded for Mark. I go to Edmonton, he comes to New York. And But what I tell people is to this day is, you know, every Canadian boy in the NHL has to play in Canada somewhere. They have to. And for me, it was Edmonton. and it may have been my favorite place of all to play, right? We go to Edmonton. I actually didn't report because my kid's mom was at bed rest. She had the kids in November. So October, November, I stayed in New York, got fined by the Oilers, 100000 a month. Uh, but it was worth it. Uh, the kids were born November 29th. I reported, you know, two days later to Edmonton and it couldn't have worked out any better. We had a great team. We played the, the Kings first round of the playoffs. Who do we play? Is the LA Kings. And, yeah. Uh, they got Gretzky. They got Curry, Charlie Huddy, McSorley, Kruzanitsky. I, I don't know how many Oilers had in that team, right? So yeah. I go back to LA and we end up beating them in six games. It was arguably one of my favorite series ever just because <laughs> of that. It ended up pretty special. I got to play in Edmonton. What a great hockey city and great group of guys I played with. And so as, as tough as it was getting traded for who I get traded for, it, it was a lot of fun playing in Edmonton. Your next stop, Bernie, New Jersey Devils. During the 92-93 season, you were traded to New Jersey. Now, Jacques Lemaire is your coach. He's very old school. We think of him as so defensive. You had to kind of change your game, more of a defensive center role. But you're quite positive about your experiences playing for Jacques. Yeah, Jacques may have been one of my favorite coaches of all time. As much as people think he's a defensive coach, he's he's a defensive coach for the defenseman, but he let the offensive guy, he let me uh, use my skill. He taught us a lot of good defense, but he was more where he wouldn't let our defenseman pinch. He was more of a defensive that way, but for a centerman, which Jock played, for me, he had me everywhere the puck was. He, he 
had me there. So uh, he allowed me to use my skill, which was great. But at the same time, he taught us all great defense. And uh, that's why the, that team was so good. Even though you had arguably the best goalie in the world, uh, Mar- uh, Martin Brodeur was his first year. You got Scotty Niedemeyer, Scotty Stevens. The defense was awesome. So Jock was a great coach. Like I said, he was one of my favorite coaches. Well, I have to ask about the 94 Eastern Conference Finals. Despite you losing with New Jersey, you've said before this Rangers-Devils series was one of your fondest playoff battles, in addition to the one you just talked about with Edmonton and Los Angeles. Mark Messier's New York Rangers against your New Jersey Devils, the guarantee. Messier tells reporters that his Rangers down 3-2 in the best of seven series will force a game seven. His words are splashed across all the New York newspapers, most famously, back page of the New York Post says, we will win tonight. He ended up scoring a hat trick to lead the Rangers to the Game 6 victory. And they, of course, ended up winning Game 7, the series, and then going on to win the Stanley Cup. I have to ask you, though, Bernie, you're right in the middle of this. How did the Devils locker room react to Messier's guarantee? Yeah, we had, it didn't bother us a bit. I think we understood. Mark was just reassuring his team that, you know, they're a good team. If we play well, we can win. It didn't bother us a bit. I think as a team, it didn't bother us because we knew we were going to win, and we really should have won. I think we we had them down two to nothing late in the second period, and we coughed up the puck late in the second. We were making a change, got screwed up. They went down three on one, scored a bad goal just because of the mistake one of our players made, not dumping the puck in, and then. You know, early in the third, Mark comes down. And if we come out 2 nothing with our defense, there's no chance they're going to win. They come down and Mark came down on his offside and just made a just a weak backhand. And, you know, as good as Marty was, and he was by far the best player the whole way, that may have been as, as weak as goal he's ever let in, right? Just, uh, just a bad goal that happens, right? So I guess it was just... New York's time because even game seven, right? Uh, double overtime. We still thought we should have won that game too. So it wasn't meant to be, but I, I've told people this day, it was one of my favorite series I've ever played in. Three games going to overtime, game seven in Madison Square Gardens, double overtime, playing against arguably one of the fiercest competitors to ever play the game in Mark. And it, it, it was good. Even though we lost, it was uh, it was a pretty cool series. Well, as you know, we're coming on 30 years and people still talk about it. And you had the uh, the ability to be there and experience it firsthand. Bernie, you moved on to Chicago Blackhawks. This was a return more to offensive hockey. You were again quite productive. And the guy I want to ask you about there was Chris Chelios as a leader in Chicago. What was that like? One of my favorite places to play. The people I got an opportunity to play with, like you said, Chris. Uh, Eddie Belfer was our goalie. Gary Suter. Jeremy Roenick. Joe Murphy, I, I said to this day, and Daryl Sutter was our coach, which was awesome. If I could play with one guy my entire career, it would have been Chris Chelios. He was just, no one worked harder uh, at the game. There wasn't a, a more fierce competitor that I've ever met than Chris. I said, he, I got nine stitches in my ear in practice one day from Chris. That's how that's how hard he worked on off the ice. We're doing push-ups and sit-ups in the sauna. I never worked out a day in my life until I got to Chicago, right? We didn't work out like they do today, but we started to, and it was so much fun. 
doing that, working out uh, off the ice. So all that was Chris. I, I, I got to hang with Chris all the time. And today he's still one of my favorite people. He's just, he could probably play today. Uh, that's how good a shape he's in, you know, being 50 years old. Bernie, you finish off your career in San Jose. You were more of an elder statesman. You're now playing in Northern California <clears> after <throat> obviously starting your career in Los Angeles. How'd you like finishing up in San Jose and playing hockey there? Yeah, what a great hockey city. Uh, great place to live. Northern California is beautiful, really special. Great, great arena. Fan, fans, one of the loudest buildings there is, is uh, a Shark Tank when I played, and I, I still call it that great group of people just a, a great city to play in and you know they they were a team that was kind of just starting to rebuild they were new so just never really had a taste of a good team and and they've had some you know sense but just a a really great hockey city and a great place to live you did not bernie win a stanley cup as a player but upon retiring you were the coach kind of a coaching consulting role of the power play for the Los Angeles Kings when they won the Stanley Cup in 2012. What was that whole experience like? And talk about your time doing this great tradition that hockey has, spending a day with the cup itself. So you win the cup in 2012, and you get to take that cup anywhere you want. What did you do? And talk about that win. Yeah, it was, uh, what a great opportunity. I reached out to Kings different times uh, about helping them with their power play. I thought they had such a good team, but their power play just, you know, had no direction, no one really running it properly and uh, reached out different times and they didn't think it would work. They made a, a coaching change for Daryl Sutter in 2012. I had reached out to Daryl and said, look, I, I'd like to come and just try to help you, your power play, right? Like you got a good team, but there's just no direction. And, you know, one great thing about Daryl, when we had him in Chicago, he called six of us in, Chelio, Suter, Roenick, myself, uh, Joe Murphy, Tony Amani, and he said, look, this is your power play. I, I don't play the power play. This is yours. You guys work hard at it and uh, have at it. And we did. And we were like 24% or something. It was ridiculous. So when I reached out to him, he said, yeah, I'd love for you to come and help. So I, I flew there January 3rd or something. At a nine-game homestand and, and just work with them a little bit. And so that was done. And I said, what do you want me to do now? He said, well, I've never been on the road with the team. I want you to come on the road. And, you know, I think one thing about Daryl, which we work so well together, is Daryl knew that I was a, a player's guy, right? Like I could identify with the players. And not that he couldn't, but it's a lot easier sometimes for a, a player to talk to a, another player, if you're skilled players, right, than somebody else. And so he said, yeah, I want you to come on the road. So um, went on the road with them. We played Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver. We win, win, tie. I said, what do you want me to do? Oh, I want you to stay. So I said, great. You know, the rest of the year was with the guys. And I spent more time with the guys than the coaches, right? Like, And I think one thing we worked so well is Daryl would come and kick you in the ass. And I would come behind him and pat you in the ass and say, you know, everything's going to be okay. We're, we're, we're good here, right? And I think we, we worked so mm -hmm. well together like that. Got on a roll, squeaked in, eighth place, played the President's Cup, Vancouver, beat them first two games there, beat them in five games, go to St. Louis, who was the best home team in the league, swept them in four, uh, Arizona, 
beat them in five, win both games there again. New Jersey for the cup, beat them both games there again. They, they set a record for wins on the road. But it, it was so cool to just, just to go through that. It's different as a, a coach, but I could identify with the players. And, you know, and, and the greatest tradition in, in sports – in hockey is you win the cup everybody gets it for a day right and uh, so I had my day with it I'll never forget the guy driving here he got me to he opened up the the back and got me to get it out and to show it to my mom and dad my brothers and sisters were there we took it to our school here took it to where I played all my minor hockey and a couple places I took it to our hunting camp had people there I actually had it up on a uh, tree stand with my bow and arrow, which it's only been in the tree stand one other time, which was cool. Uh, I actually had it out in the lake. My dad had made a canoe for all the boys, and I had it out in the canoe uh, that my dad made for me with the cup, and that pictures have been around. So just a special day, right? Like uh, you have it for the whole day. I had all all my friends, family, just from all around come and just spend the day with the cup. So like I said, the best tradition in sports were where you get it for the day. And we, we definitely took full advantage. My daughter, you know, she asked if she could drink out of it. So we put a beer in there for her. So that everybody's <laughs> drinking out of the cup. So it was pretty cool. Fabulous. Well, a great experience. Bernie, you are far too humble. You're too cool a guy. I'm going to say it instead of you. It is criminal that Bernie Nichols is not in the Hockey Hall of Fame. In my opinion, you were let down by kind of two factors. You played primarily on the West Coast and couldn't be appreciated by East Coast viewers and East Coast voters. And you didn't win a cup as a player in a sport that relies on teams. It's the hardest championship to win in pro sports. One guy can't control it. But I think those are the factors that have prevented you from being in there. Is this a big deal for you or it is what it is? Well, it always is what it is. But I think, you know, when you look back and the, probably the biggest part was is where I played. You know, I, I think if if I scored 70 goals playing in Toronto, they would have inducted me the next day. But yep. I think when you, you look at who's getting inducted now and I've said this different times, everybody who's in there deserves to be in there. One thousand uh, percent. The kids they put in there this year deserve to be in there. One thousand percent. But I. I, I, for the life of me, can't figure out, like, the kids that went in this year, the Sandin twins and Alfredson, the Sandin twins have basically the same statistics as I do other than flipped. Uh, they played, like, 1,200 games and got 1,100 points. I played 1,100 games and got 1,200 points. Alfredson's not even close to mine. None of them won a cup, but they all played in the world championships, which is fine, uh, representing their country. But I tell people this day, I'm a centerman, and in my era, uh, Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, Dale Howard-Chuck, Stevie Iserman, Brian Trotje, Doug Gilmore, Joe Newendike, Mario Lemieux, <laughs> how did I miss Mario? Yeah. All these guys are centermen. They're all Hall of Famers mm -hmm. with 2,000 points or whatever, right? Like, how am I supposed to play ahead of those guys, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to criticize me for not playing the Canada Cup. Well, I can't play in the Canada Cup because there's seven Hall of Fame centermen, you know, that I played in my era with that would play ahead of me. Like I, I and I compare Daryl Sittler all the time, right? And and I love Daryl, 
should be in hundred one thousand. Daryl and I have the exact same stats. Mine are a little mm. bit better. You know, he had ten points one game. I had eight, but I had mm-hmm. seventy goals. I had a few more goals, a few more points, whatever. But Daryl played his better part of his career in Toronto. Like to me, Daryl Settler was amazing. Uh, yep, was awesome and should be in the Hall of Fame. Well, I had the exact same career as Daryl Settler, pretty much mm-hmm. to a T. But I just played mine in the U.S. So, like, how can he be there and I'm not? Like, like, yep. what are you comparing? Daryl never won a cup, but yep. Like to me, I'm not saying I'm awesome. Daryl was awesome, but I did the yep. exact same thing that he did. So, absolutely. Um, you know, Lanny McDonald. Lanny won a cup that he really, at the end of his career with with the team. You know, well, there's guys that have won four or five Stanley Cups, but anybody yep. could have played that team and won, right? Uh, Lanny had 500 goals, but he probably only had about, you know, I don't even know if he had a thousand points, right? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. That's that's the way it is. It, uh, there's nothing I can do about it. But I mean, are you, you know, does it bother you sometimes? Well, when you get overlooked, you get overlooked. But uh, you should be acknowledged in what what you've done when it it's comparable to all these other people, I guess. Absolutely agreed. As you say, it's not that they shouldn't be in, but it is that you should be in. And uh, I'm going to say, Bernie Nichols, you should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. One way you got to air out a lot of your feelings was the book you wrote, From Floodlights to Bright Lights, the book writing process and the reaction from readers. How'd you enjoy that? Uh, The process was great looking back at, at your career and, and things you've done. One of the coolest things is, well, with what's happened, you know, some concussions, this and that, I forgot a lot of my past. And and to, to hear other people mention things that you forgot about was always really cool, you know, and just, just to hear what teammates and, and, and people say was, was really, you know, pretty cool, I guess. Uh, people have, have read it, have, give me great compliments in it some of the best books they've they've sports books they've ever read so you know i know a lot of them are family and friends and maybe they have to say that but if they tell the truth then uh <laughs> i think that's really pretty good yeah and it's interesting as you say uh, due to concussions and everything it was kind of interesting that you, you kind of had to learn about yourself yeah. by reading your own book yeah that's right <laughs> bernie you've been excellent with your time i want to close off with you talking about what you're working on in 2023 and beyond. What takes up your time these days? Well, I still love uh, doing charity hockey games. I'm actually getting ready to go to Maryland Muse Fancy Camp here in, in a little bit. Uh, I have a charity that the Bernie Nichols Foundation, we, uh, we've we had a golf event in Las Vegas the last couple of years. We're having one again this May. It's uh, We actually support the Deborah Canada, a uh, great charity. Uh, last year, we auctioned off golf with Gretzky. So we're actually heading to Florida in a, a couple of weeks to play go- golf with Gretz, the group that bought the round with Wayne. Uh, I hunt all fall is my, my favorite thing to do. I'm passionate about that. I, I golf all summer, pretty much every day. So still, still active like that. Enjoy the joy hunting and golfing and doing charity hockey stuff. Absolutely. We're still keeping busy. Yeah. So again, the book is From Floodlights to Bright Lights with a foreword written by your pal Wayne Gretzky. Bernie, are you on social media? Where can we best follow you and where can we best follow the Bernie Nichols Foundation? I'm on both Facebook and Instagram and the book 
people all they gotta do is go to the uh bernienichols.com and you can buy the book proceeds go to the the foundation if you do uh which is great and actually the my event in may will be on there as well so you can find me there fabulous well great talking to you hearing all your great stories and we look forward to uh catching up with you at the next alumni game even though you don't want to score yeah. we know you're going to put a few more there in you there go. it was great talking Thanks, to you Andrew. my pleasure and to the listeners we thank you for listening to this episode of the toronto legends podcast and on behalf of bernie nichols i am andrew applebaum saying mahalo Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.